Welcome to the Sports Fan Radio podcast. In this episode, we speak with Australian rower Jack Kelly, a winner at Australian National Championships and a semi-finalist at the Henley Royal Regatta. A very special guest today, Jack Kelly, rower. Judge, you were the person who arranged for Jack to be on the program, so uh, I might throw to you straight off to uh, start the ball rolling. Welcome, Jack. Welcome back. Thanks, Jack. Our our rowing guy. Um, He's not just a rower, by the way. He's a... uh, a trivia master par excellence, and he's also a, a young lawyer doing very well. However, it's about rowing that we got to win today, Jack. Tell us a little bit about your background, uh, just so we can prove you've got some credibility in what you're talking about. Um, yeah, all right. Thanks for that, uh, Jack. So, yeah, I started rowing at school, uh, would have been about 2008. After school, I went on uh, with my club rowing, ended up going on. Uh, won a couple of Australian national championships um, and also won national championships in New Zealand and Canada. Uh, then sort of, I was trying to make the national team for a few years, uh, both as a heavyweight and a lightweight. Uh, so I got reasonably close as a lightweight. Uh, went up to trial in Canberra, but ultimately never made never made the team. Uh, and then in the last sort of couple of years that I was rowing competitive, competitively, so sort of 2018, 2019, uh, I was trying to race and win at Henley Royal Regatta over in England. So we were the runner-up in 2018 and we made the semi-final in, in 2019. And that's sort of where I finished up with the competitive rowing. So the last couple of years has been just taking it a bit easier, doing an odd regatta here and there. Good on you, Jack. Look, we, we run, specifically want to talk to you today about the Olympics, um, rowing Olympics. Um, yep. Can you just give us a, a bit of an idea of the rowing program at the Olympics? Yeah, sure. So um, you've got four, I, I guess, sort of categories. You've got the heavyweight men, lightweight men, heavyweight women and, and lightweight women. These are the sort of last Olympics that you'll see the lightweight events at. So they've cut them down from 2016. You've only got a lightweight men's and women's double. So you used to have a whole litany of events for um, for the lighties, but they're phasing that out. Apparently, it's a direction from the IOC. They don't want weight-based categories anymore. Um, is that controversial, Jack, that, that that's the case? Um, yeah, lightweight rowing's got a pretty long history, so there's a lot of people very unhappy with that. Um, at the end of the day, I, I think probably World Rowing didn't fight too hard for it um, because they are already under a lot, lot of pressure in other areas uh, through different <laughs> numbers and, and things like that. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of numbers involved in rowing. If you've got ten eights competing, that's already 80, 80 or ninety athletes. When you consider there's coxes as well, so they're trying to cut down on the on the number of athletes overall. And, and I think they in, in in fighting to keep some of the other stuff, they've let the lightweights go. Basically, I was going to say, I know disrespect. I wasn't aware of the lightweight heavyweight uh, categories. Is it more of an advantage to be a, a smaller man in in the boat, or do you want to be a, a behemoth? Um, who's going to row faster? Because you don't want to be built like a two-iron with ears, for example, you know? Yeah. No, you, you generally want to be heavier. You, you generate more force, um, more force behind the handle, more force on the blade. So a heavier crew will be faster up to a certain point, um, obviously. Uh, so the lighties are slower. And it, it, it's basically, you know, a division for some of the lighter and, and shorter guys. So the, the taller and the heavier you are, the, the better you are generally. I was going to say, we can't see your shoulders there, but I'm sure they're pretty impressive. Uh, they were. I mean, I was a lighty for a little bit as well. <laughs> um, yeah. So they're not. They're not crazy. Like <coughs> so tell us the, the typical um, profile of a heavyweight um, rower uh, for a start. How heavy are they? 
And and then tell us about the, the Australian team and the, the, the fellows that you know in the boat. Yeah, sure. So um, the typical heavyweight row, if you're looking at Olympian, you wouldn't find many guys under about 6'3", 6'4". They're all pretty pretty big guys and weight. They probably weigh 90 to 100 kilos. Some of the really big guys, there's a bloke on the, on the British team uh, who's probably about 6'9", 6'10", and 115 kilos. So some of them are just massive. Um, you get to a point of a bit of diminishing returns, though. But so as a general rule for a heavyweight, yeah, you're looking probably 90 to 100 kilos, probably averaging around 6'5". And what um, age, Jack? Sorry, what age is, is, is there an optimal age? Because I understand there's some fairly young rowers in the Australian boats. Yeah, so a mate of mine's the youngest on the team at 20. Um, his name's Angus Dawson. He's racing in the men's eight. He, um, he stayed with my family a couple of years ago when he was training for the under-23 world champs, which he won. So he's, he's the youngest. There is, there's a Norwegian rower called Olaf Tufte. He's 45 years old and he's back for his seventh Olympics. He's a Norwegian farmer, so he spends six months of the year farming and six months of the year rowing. Uh, so he's, he's a bit of a character. Otherwise, on the Australian team, you're, you're looking at probably 20. 20s the youngest. Most people are mid-20s. Uh, you, don't, you, you need that time to sort of develop the skill, the skill in the fitness space. You won't find many 18 or 19-year-olds. Angus is a bit of an outlier at 20. And then just the commitment so much, you don't see many people sticking around into their 30s. It's a full-time job, um, especially these days. You have to live either full-time in Canberra or Penrith, and you, you can't do anything else. It's a, it's a full-time employment training and, and and just rowing. So it doesn't leave a lot of scope for much else. I was going to say that I do the uh, rugby league segment. The physicality wouldn't be far off rugby league in terms of you don't see many young players. I'm talking 18, 17, 19, that that age, because the physical requirements of the game, you just wouldn't last. And and no doubt rowing similar, just that endurance you just wouldn't find in someone that young. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. In the sort of strength as well, you need years to build up, build up enough strength, um, to compete at that sort of level, you, you, you know, might yeah, you're not going to be able to find many 18 year olds that are able to do that. I think James Tompkins and Drew Ginn both came in at about 18, and they they were certainly sort of you know freaks in that sense. They were very young. Jack, financially, how would you, I imagine? Well, the Olympics only come around four years. I imagine there's world champs. I presume every year, but really, how do you um, finance yourself in doing this? Uh, so the rowers are supported by Gina Reinhardt. So she's sort of taken over the funding of the, of the rowing, uh, essentially. So she pays a salary. Uh, it varies based on how well you've did over the last season. So I think if you're a gold medalist at the world champs, you're looking at, I think, 80 to 90,000. And if you're, you know, new on the team, it might be 50 to 60 roughly. Um, so she she and her foundation pay pay for all the rowers, um, pay their salaries. Same, I think she does for the swimmers or, or some of the swimmers. Um, so that, that yeah, that's good of her. She's she's taken that on, and it, it means that you know the Australians are basically able to live and um, live and row full time and, and compete that way. Just on the um, the mental side, I've read a bit about it. it. It's similar, they say, to the Tour de France. It's one of those sports where you would reach what they call a breaking point, and we've just had state of origin, and the players say they reach a point where they're almost, or they are at breaking point. How do you get through that zone? Can you feel it coming and you just have to get yourself through it? Because there'd certainly be a point in a race where you've pushed yourself right to your limit. How do you how do you mentally get yourself through it? There's a lot of training that goes into it. So just doing it over and over and over again, you start to learn what your limits are and what, what your absolute 
limits are. You know, you, you learn that there's only a certain amount of effort you can give over a race and, and you have to try and moderate that. You can go out and you can try and get the lead in the first 750 metres um, and hold on for the last 1250, but you're going to have a pretty um, a pretty rough time doing so. And, you, and everyone racing has done it so often and at, and at such a high level that they know that if they go out, any one of them could be in the lead after 750 if they really wanted to be, but they wouldn't be there at the end. So, yeah, me- mentally it's pretty tough. Um, you get a bit of a tunnel vision. It, it's, you know, in some of the races, you the, the effort you give, you sort of start to uh, lose focus. Your vision starts to blur a bit and it all, all sort of really starts to get, get a bit rough. There's a few different things people do. So there's, there's a lot of caffeine. They tried to ban caffeine at one point or caffeine pills. That's now changed because it was such a weird, ridiculous rule that was so hard to enforce because people would have 12 short blacks instead and they just couldn't tell what was a caffeine pill and what wasn't. Guys are loading up on bicarb soda these days, which apparently counteracts all the lactic acid. So the lactic acid's a major thing. After about 600 metres, you've generated so much lactic that it's just going to burn and it's your body can't get rid of that while you're still rowing. So you're basically hitting this pain threshold and then you've got to sit there um, and essentially tolerate that for as long as you can and hopefully make it to the end um, without dropping off too much. Jack, uh, what's the Australia's uh, chances at the Olympics, both in the men and the women? Um, so the men, you've got the men's fours, probably our best bet for, for a gold. Um, they're the priority boat, so they've got all our top four rowers, rowers in that. You've got Josh Booth, who's back for his third Olympics. He's the only three-time Olympian on the rowing team. So the men's four is probably the one to watch on the men's side. The men's eight will also will also have a good shot. So I've got a few mates across across the men's eight. Um, they're largely some younger guys, some younger guys in that. Um, for the women, it's a similar story. You've got the women's four, they're probably our top boat. Um, they've won multiple gold medals throughout the last sort of Olympiad over the last four, four or five years now. Um, and the women's eight also, they're going to be, a, they're going to be right up there. They'll, They'll almost certainly medal um, and hopefully can push for gold. They're a bit interesting. They've changed it now. You can have uh, coxes of either gender at the Olympics. Mm. So we've got a male cox in the women's and men's eight. Um, who the one in the women's eight is a mate of mine. He's from Melbourne, um, and and cox is in Melbourne when he's not on the national team. Gilding, you've got a question? Yeah, um, Jack. Just a quick question to you. Um, yeah. Why are Australian rowers so good on the world stage? Um, in Olympic, the Olympic history, the cyclists and the rowers are always amongst the Australian best teams. Is there any particular reason why we do it so well in Australia or is it just the thing? Is there some reason for it? But we seem to outshine other countries with larger population. Yeah, well, I think there's a few things that go into it. We've got a long rowing tradition, so we've always, we've always had that sort of set up and infrastructure in Australia. It used to be, you know, going back to the early 1900s, like a very massive social event. So we've always had that. We've always had the boathouses on on the Yarra River and, you know, various places throughout Sydney and Brisbane and, and um, Adelaide. So that goes into it. It's, it's also a very expensive sport. So I think we're pretty lucky in that it, we're a very affluent country and there's a lot of countries that just simply can't afford to, to give that sort of infrastructure that they need to train someone up from, you know, beginner to, to an elite level, um, the, you know, the Olympic boats, it'll cost 90 grand per boat. So yeah, you need a lot of money 
it, it's it just yeah it, there's a lot of money essentially at the end of the day it goes into it and a lot of a lot of countries can't fund that and they can't get that sort of set up off the ground um because you'd be waiting for 10 years to see any results and that whole time you're pouring money into it and you're not going to see anything it takes you know china's probably the only country that's come out in the last 40 years that that wasn't already a rowing a rowing nation so they've come out in the last probably since 2008 have come on and, and, and they've had a few good crews, particularly in the women. But outside of China, it's it's been the same rowing powerhouses probably going back to about, you know, 1900. We do seem to perform exceptionally well come the Olympics in every every Olympics it's been. You know, we've yeah, been yeah. very strong compared to, say, in England and America and all those. They seem to be just outperforming them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. We've got our... Um, sort of what you might call our pet categories. So the fours for the men's and women's. Um, yeah. We focus on that. And there's also a bit of, I don't know if you call it games and shit, there's a bit of under, an understanding between the different countries. Australia will target the fours. Britain and Germany will target the eights. And then smaller countries will target, you know, the doubles and the singles where if they're a smaller country, they're not going to have four or eight guys that are going to be at that level. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they might try and get one or two guys and, and say, go target the pair or the double or do something like that. But yeah, I agree. We've certainly got a long, a long history of doing really well. And it, it comes down to probably numbers and training as well. We, we get a lot of rowers coming through high school. Um, yeah. Across every single state, um, really yeah. every single state's got a pretty strong rowing setup. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, can you talk us through the difference? And this is for the uninitiated, your, your Cox. Um, that's the person at the end of the boat with the, the megaphone. Yeah. Do you get a different style in your cocks there? Are there certain types that might get a bit personal or do they keep it quite technical and structured? Like what, what gets you going there uh, with, the, with the, row, the rowing action? What can really fire you up best? I, I'd probably lean to having someone a bit more technical um, when you're in a race. Like I don't, if, if, when you're in the middle of a race, I find I don't need too much motivation. You've got the crews there next to you. You've been doing it long enough. You know how to push yourself. What you really need is is technical cues. What's if something's slipping, uh, for example, technically uh, that can lead pr- to you know pretty dramatic changes in speed or even minor changes in speed can be you know a big difference. Then you know for other other people it, it, it is about you know getting up and about and getting someone who's really motivating and in their face and getting them to pull harder. But, and ultimately, a cox is picked by the crew, so the crew will vote on who they want the cox to be. And it'll come down to the personality of the crew and what they like. So the guy that's coxing the women's eight this year, for example, James Rook, he's um, he's one of the ones that will try and get you up and about. A lot of energy, a bit of a larrikin, but, you know, all, all the girls there love him. You know, he gets on really well with everyone and, and, and I think they just enjoy having him around. He's a great influence on the crew. Whereas the guy that's coxing the men's eight this year is uh, called Stuart Sim. He's, you know, he's probably more on the technical side. Um, you know, very well versed in in everything that you need to go fast, and and he'll be on them and, and watching them and making sure you know catches are all in time, uh, everyone's hitting the right lengths, everything's going well, and, and keeping probably more of a calming influence on everyone. You're our uh, our go-to rowing guy. Um, I think uh, Professor will get checked back another time. There's two things that come up today: is the influence of Gina Reinhardt on rowing, and I can tell you other sports. Um, she's unsung hero of Australian sport, Gina Reinhardt, and also I'd like to talk to you about rowing for the average person. We always talk about the elite, but um, as I understand it, rowing is a fantastic sport uh, for just about anybody. 
for a whole range of reasons. So we'll get you back another day, Jack, uh, to talk about that. But Gelding, I think you got a last question for Jack. Oh, look, it was just, um, again, sorry, John, to interrupt on all that. Um, Jack, it seems a very tactical type of sport. And I suppose that's where the Cox is kind of, you know, setting the, the rating of the boat and things like that. Maybe you could just explain that. And I did always listen with interest when they said the water's very fast today or there's lanes that the water's um, suiting. Can you kind of comment on those things just quickly? I'm just going to say quickly, Gilding, if Gay Waterhouse was a cox, they'd be going out like a greyhound. The boat would be <laughs> 20 lengths in front of everyone else. They'd be leading early. <laughs> um, yeah, so tac tactics are a bit different in each boat. The single skull is the most tactical because it's the longest race, it's the slowest boat, and there's most time for you to do something. Mm -hmm. um, boats like the eight, you basically just go. So it's it's a you know you're done in just over five minutes. So everyone's just going as fast as they can the whole time. Um, there's the boats are moving so fast that it's hard to get much of it on anyone else. Yeah. So the coxes are only in the eights. And so they're trying to basically keep on them the whole time. Stuff like the fours and the doubles are interesting because you've got, you, you know, you've got to make your own calls. So I used to sit my last few years rowing, I'd sit in the two seat of a four and make all the calls. And you obviously, you can't say much. So you've almost got a code between everyone, just single syllable codes. And each means something different. And so you'll be making those calls as you come down the course and, and everyone knows and you've practiced it so much, you know what the response is. In, in terms of sort of fast water it's all a bit course dependent so if you're up at penrith you you want to be sort of near the shelter um there's trees on one side um whereas you know if you're racing over in perth you have the Fremantle doctor come in sometimes and you can set world record times just with the mm. tailwind that's blown up uh this year at tokyo they're racing in tokyo bay between a couple of man-made islands that they've reclaimed so it's salt water so the boats are going to be sitting up high they're going to be a lot faster because there's less drag so you're going to be looking at some really fast times this year if the, if the water, if the, sorry, if the wind gets um, gets in the right direction. Listen, uh, that's, that's been very informative, and uh, I think you'd agree, Professor. We'll get Jack back. Yeah, thanks, Judge. Um, before I let you go, Jack, there was there was one question I had for you. I, I looked at the Olympic team selection. Yeah. And I saw that almost seventy five percent of the team are debutants for this Olympics. Mm -hmm. Given that mid-20s is about the age range, there's a very small window for most rowers to make it to an Olympic team. Would, that, would those figures seem to tell that story? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty right. There's um, one other factor with the Australian team is it's the first Olympics uh, that we've had since we started the National Training Centres. So they came in in 2016 and a lot of people quit at that point. So previously you'd be able to you know, you'd have the Australian men's four rowing out of Melbourne and you might have the men's eight rowing out of Sydney. Everyone everyone on the men's team has to go live in Canberra these days. So a lot of a lot of the older guys, um, you know, who had families who were established in certain places, they weren't prepared to prepared to do that. So a lot of they've lost a lot of um a lot of the guys from twenty sixteen they haven't wanted to come back. So that that's another reason it's probably a bit higher this time around. Okay, probably a bit of a false positive. Yeah, maybe a little bit. You know, most people, I think you'll see a lot of people from this one, especially with only three years to 2024, probably stick around. There'll be a, a lot more returning, yeah, in, in 2024. Okay, Jack, um, thanks very much for your contribution today. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sports Fan Radio Podcasts. If you like this one, check out our others, subscribe to the channel, and tell a friend about us.
You can also check out the Sports Fan Radio YouTube channel.